Hi, I'm Daniel Lucas, and welcome to Book 101. Book 101 is all about the books that I read for the last 40 years. And today, I have my special guest. She is best-selling author, of course, and author of several books, no other than Miss Safa Barnow. Hello, hello, hi, hi, everybody. Hi, my name is Safa Burnell. I am a best-selling cyberpunk and mythpunk author. Uh, you can find my books and more about me at safaburnell.com. I've written such books as the best-selling Neon Lieben, Char and Ash, and the newer one we're going to be talking about today that just got released, Macabre and Monstrous. I'm so excited to be here. It's always a joy to be on Book 101. And... I hope everyone's having a beautiful day. Yes, indeed. So, so Miss Bernal, before we go on to your new latest best-selling anthologies, let's do the recap of all your books. Beautiful. Okay, so I want everybody here to know we have gone through several of these books in their own dedicated podcasts here on Book One on Wonder Review. So please do uh, take a look at the back catalog and you can see, uh, well, listen to us talking about Char and Ash, Judge of Mystics Book One, Judge of Mystics Book Two, Son of Abel. Also in the Judge of Mystics series, Books of Revels and Ginungagap. Those ones have all come out. Uh, except for Ganungagap, Ganungagap is just a little bit, it's uh, it's going to take a little bit more time. Uh, I have also been involved with the Mythpunk um, stories in uh, Warped Lens, Futures Lens, and the Cyberpunk stories in also Futures Lens, Usurper Kings, and Neon Lieben. And Neon Lieben, it was my baby that was published in 2021. And it was my first big significant novel. And it has a very, very warm place in my heart. Book two is coming out next year. And so I am actively preparing for Emptiness at the Center, which is the sequel to Neon Lieben, uh, which has made me kind of get down on some more research because AI and quantum computing has changed <laughs> in the last 10 years. It's changed in the last year. So all of a sudden I'm like, oh, <laughs> more research. So uh, for those of you who are waiting for the sequel to Neon Lieben, that is legitimately what is taking up the majority of the time. It is making sure that the science is as researched and as best practice as I can possibly make it. Yes, Neon Lieben is your best selling piece, right? Yeah, it got um, top 100. At one point, it was top 100 in cyberpunk, genetic engineering, science fiction, and space marine science fiction. Miss Bernal, what do you think the elements that you put in Neon Libbins that make this best-selling album? Ooh, I think, number one, I tell an emotional story. Not, you know, weeping in the corner kind of emotional, but all of my characters are very vivid, all of them have their own emotional depths and they linger. They they hold on. Also, you know, you've got kind of these powerful figures like Adarastos and Dr. Karnak and Ego and all of these guys. And then you have characters like Max Allard 
And Max Allard is wonderful. He's this wide-eyed 21-year-old just seeing the world for the first time. And he's funny. He's hilarious, but he's also got this really just genuine and good heart. And so you have this mix of this little bit of not necessarily comic relief. I mean, he's he's hilarious, but he also emotionally grounds all of these super soldiers that we have with people like Adarastos that Max meets really early on right in, in chapter one. And Max becomes the emotional center. He becomes the kind of glue that holds everybody together and that, you know, this one person who sees something going on in the world, he sees something that he considers unjust and goes, well, if nobody else is going to fix it, I will. And so I think having that kind of character in there who, you know, is funny and is heartfelt and things like that at the same time, I think it really helps ground the more serious and sincere parts of the plot. You know, because we're dealing with genetic engineering, we're dealing with uh, genetically engineered organisms being used as, you know, indentured people within a military complex. You know, we're also dealing with whether or not a general AI could be sapient in and of themselves. So we're dealing a lot with, you know, what is the nature of sapiens? What is the nature of humanity? Uh, but then we have characters like Baiko and like Fester and like Max, and they they let everything breathe. And I think that's what did it. It's that if you're going to take somebody to a valley, if you're going to take somebody to something that's hard, then you have to give them a relief. You have to give them something that makes them go, whoo, okay. Yeah. I can like, <laughs> now I can go more on this journey. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think the next book of Neil Levin, you will get those criteria to make it a, best a bestseller too? I very much hope so. That is definitely the goal. You know, it's all up to the wonderful people who enjoy cyberpunk and genetic engineering sci-fi. Uh, you know, it is up to you, dear readers. I hope you love it. I hope you bond with these characters as much as I have. Uh, the best I can do is write the best story I can and then try to connect with the beautiful people around here who, you know, who would like that kind of story, you know? And I think if, if I keep to the sort of the sensation that I got in Neon Lehman, you know, uh, reviewers were saying, I never thought science fiction could be so beautiful, you know, and they were talking about just the nature of the prose as being very beautiful. But then in that same review, they would call it, you know, a kick-ass roller coaster. You know, it's diabolical, <laughs> but it's beautiful, but it's diabolical, but it's this. If I can keep that tone, I think I've got a fairly good shot. Definitely. What will be your timeline for the next series? So Emptiness at the Center is coming out in autumn of 2024. Wow. Good yeah. luck for that. And can you give us a glimpse what we're going to happen to the next series? Ooh, okay. So Neon Lieben ends on a cliffhanger. I know it ends on that dreaded, awful convention of a cliffhanger. And so at the end of Neon Lieben, Adarastos and the rest of the genetically engineered super soldiers known as the Augments, they are, they have been captured. They have been captured by the syndicate and only Max and a couple of others are able to mount a rescue. And so Neon Lieben's sequel starts off right at the ending of the last book with the mounted rescue of these super soldiers from the genetic 
engineering labs of the rival syndicate and all of their mutated monsters. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it uh, there's a big spoiler I won't say about the end. That yes. connects the two storylines. But um, we also go back to the 2090s. So the storyline with the monsters and the genetic engineering, that all happens in the 2150s. Back in the 2090s, we've got a storyline of the rise of Lieben, uh, Lieben being the AI. And so we are switching between the two. But uh, if you read Neon Lieben and you read to the end, you read the last, uh, you know, the last paragraph of the book, then uh, you will, uh, you'll see what the spoiler is and how everything becomes interconnected in a very real way. So emptiness of the center is definitely going to be the final connection of both storylines. They are going to come back together. They are going to make, you know, make that synthesis happen. And then we'll just continue with one storyline as we go forward. So Ms. Bernal, how many series of this uh, novel? So, okay. There's Neon Lieben. There's emptiness at the center. And then, um, there is a perspective novel. Now we're working on timelines. There's one called Isle of Noises, which will be happening. And then Merlin Awake, that will also be happening. And the timeline question is whether or not Isle of Noises will be the precursor to Merlin Awake or whether it will happen afterwards. We're still working on that uh, behind the scenes uh, just because they're parallel stories, but you could release them kind of simultaneously. And then uh, we do have three other novels which are already written uh, that are waiting for their time. So the Hedonism Wholesale Inc. trilogy will be coming out a couple years after these other novels. So by about 2027, the entire what will end up being a nine novel series will be out. Wow. Congratulations <laughs> and good luck for that, Ms. Burnell. Crossing my fingers. <laughs> Crossing my fingers and I wish you all the best. And before we go on, Ms. Burnell, I want to shout out to the people listening in Egypt. Thank you, Egypt, because on Apple Chat, I'm number 12. Thank you so much, Egypt, because in Cairo, Governorate. I got 52% audience share. Alexandria, 38%. Gaza, 7%. And Garbia, at 3%. Marhaba, Egypt. Shukran, Jazilan for supporting this podcast. Because this podcast is created to empower writers all over the world. Like Miss Safa Bernal. So, Miss Bernal, let's talk about your latest best-selling anthology. Ooh. Yes, Macabre and Monstrous, a horror anthology of eldritch space, myth monsters, and forest frights. Now, this one, I shared responsibilities with my my co-hosts on the We Aren't Dead Yet podcast, Emily Armstrong and Kes Bischoff. And so it's the three of us, you know, Emily and I wrote two stories each, and Kes wrote a novella. And we all have different views of horror. And that's what I love about it. Macabre and Monstrous, you know, it was released for Halloween. It was something meant to be in that sort of, you know, frightening and monsters and kind of horror range. And Kess did this brilliant kind of, if anybody has, you know, kind of gone back in film history, those 1970s sci-fi monster movies, you know, the sort of campy rise of the pod people, ah, you know, like that kind <laughs> of thing. And so she did in uh, her Pangorio setting, which is a playable setting for uh, people who play TTRPGs, 
she wrote this incredible story called Harvest of a Horror about an evil tree that turns people into pumpkin people. And, you know, it's it's just fantastic fun. You know, <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> fun. The two main characters are Aunt Myra and um, her niece, who is in magic school and everything. It's just it's just campy. There is there are elements of horror in it, but it's definitely the more sort of like breath of comedy, breath of fun in the middle of the collection. So very proud of Cass for that. Um, Harvest of Horror is just a delight. Um, now, Emily Armstrong is a internationally awarded world builder. Uh, she won incredible amounts of World Anvil world building awards over the years for her horror settings like Beckettville, Aldris Space, and Culinary Punk. And in Macabre and Monstrous, Emily wrote two stories in her Elder Space setting, which is a cosmic space horror setting. And so we've got fell plumes where space truckers, um, Lark and Mech, think they've scored the payday of a lifetime when they agree to transport mysterious crates to a remote facility at the edge of the known cosmos. This is both cosmic and body horror something that Emily Armstrong really excels at. She just does incredibly well to set the mood, set the pace. But the thing I love most when I first read Fell Plumes, I fell in love with Lark and Mech. I fell in love with this incredible lesbian couple in the book who they just love each other. And all of this crazy stuff is going on around them. And they still find the ability to connect through it. And so as much as there was like, oh, my gosh, these monsters. Oh, my goodness, this stuff is going on. Holy whoa, what's going to happen? No, I don't want to turn the page. I have to turn the page. As much as it was that kind of a horror story, I also just felt for it. I felt emotionally involved. And that's the thing that Emily brings to horror. You know, it's, just, oh, I love it. And then her other story, um, Salvager's Loop is about veteran salvager Corvin deciding to make one last scrapping run when he boards a derelict starship deep in uncharted space. But he soon discovers the ghostly void lost vessel is caught in a nightmare outside of time. And this one is pure cosmic horror. It is incredible. It is tense. It, uh, it's got a fantastic ending. I love Corvin as a character. Um, he does such a good job. And again, just weaving that sort of sense of timelessness being outside of time and what that could do to a sentient and sapient being, you know, Oh, it's salvages loop is brilliant. It's brilliant. It's, it's true horror, you know, <laughs> you're like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I actually got to do something, which I had been waiting about 12 years to do. So for me, macabre and monstrous is an incredibly emotional book. Because, uh, you know, we've talked at length about my Judge of Mystics series, you know, Char and Ash, Son of Abel, Book of Revels, Gin and Gagop. Well, back in the early 2010s, the Judge of Mystics world started with two short stories. One, a flash fiction piece called Rust, where a cleaning lady steals a magic book from the basement of an elderly man in Vancouver. That was the first story that started the entire world. And you will notice those elements in Char and Ash with the cleaning lady who steals the uh, the book of knowledge. And then there was a story that I had titled um, Lavender Blue, which became Whiskey and Sinner's Blood. And Whiskey and Sinner's Blood is in Macabre and Monstrous. And it is the origin story of the character Carolee 
in Char and Ash. And it was the first real novella that I had written for this Judge of Mystics universe. It is the story which formed the Judge of Mystics universe. And for years, it had been sitting on my hard drive. You know, I had shipped it a few times. I had tried to, you know, get it into different collections and tried to kind of get it a little bit of legs and some life. And nobody wanted it. And, you know, it just kind of sat there. And when we had the opportunity to do Macabre and Monstrous, um, I was like, well, what do you think? Like, I've grown since I wrote this. Maybe I should give it another go. And I did. And I gave them the draft, you know, I gave the draft in to the editors and to um, Emily and Kess. And the answer back was, oh, my God, this needs to be there. And it was like, oh, oh, my gosh, it's finally happening. Like this origin story for the entirety of the Judge of Mystics world, it's finally happening. And I realized it was one of those moments where I know we were talking about this, I believe, last time we were we were doing a podcast together. Um, you know, sometimes a story is really good, but you need to wait. You need to wait until you've grown up a little bit. You need to wait until your life experiences kind of come around. And Whiskey and Sinner's Blood was absolutely that story um, because it is about a couple. It is about Colm and Carolee O'Riordan, uh, who have a 10-year-old boy named Liam. And they are living in Ireland in the 90s. So if anybody knows, you know, Irish history back in the 90s, you know, this is within the timeline of the Troubles. But I don't go into to that too much because that's, you know, a family that were over there, but I was not. Um, and Colm comes home one day with a bottle of whiskey and says, Carolee, my love, I need to talk. I made a deal with the fairy queen and she wants our son. And it sets into motion this character of Carolee, where if you've read Charanash and Son of Abel, you know that Carolee is the fairy queen's assassin. And so this is how Carolee goes from an Irish Catholic housewife working at the butchers a couple days a week to the fairy queen's assassin. And it is emotional and it is family and it is heart-wrenching and there's some funny moments in there too. It is very much that sort of anti-hero fall from grace. You're definitely seeing a lot of Carolee making terrible decisions, but it is one of the things that I am the most proud of in all of my writing since I was a child. And I'm so <laughs> happy to see it in Macabre and Monstrous. It is a 15,000 word story. So it's almost novella territory. And it is just incredible. So interesting short stories, Miss <laughs> Bernal. But uh, I want to take the opportunity to promote my new upcoming podcast, Sex 101, Sex and Relationships with the alluring Miss Luba Venable. Starting this November 30, people, please do listen. Sex 101, we're going to talk about how to spice your relationships, marriage, and a lot more. So please do listen. Sex 101. Sounds like something Carolee and Colm needed. <laughs> The entire yes. story would have been saved if they had that podcast. <laughs> Definitely, we're gonna save your relationship because we got we believe that w what you uh, promise 
in the church that through thick and thin must be like that. <laughs> Long-lasting relationship. We're going to talk about anything under the sun about sex and relationships. So please do listen. Sex 101. So Miss Bernal, what is a short story and how does it differ from other forms of fiction? So a short story, in the most reductive sense, a short story is a story that takes up less words. <laughs> you know, you can start there. Uh, I actually do a seminar workshop called Condense on creating flash fiction. So uh, you can get more information on that at SafferBernal.com. And we can go through the entire way of creating flash fiction within 90 minutes. Uh, now, a short story, in my opinion, is something where you have a fraction of a moment. I, I remember it best when I was in university, when we were looking at several kinds of modern poetry and we got to the poetry of William Carlos Williams. And, you know, the, there was, you know, the flock of chickens beside a red wheelbarrow. And this poem, you know, people were going, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Let's break it down. And I sat back and went, well, it's just a about, you know, a, a bunch of chickens beside a red wheelbarrow, like that's what it is. And my instructor went, well, yeah, you're right. This is a poetic photograph. This is a Polaroid picture of that moment. I view short fiction as a series of Polaroid pictures chained together by one causal loop. So you want to make sure that it's one major idea, whereas in a novel or in a novella, even, you know, there's going to be a plot and there's going to be one or two subplots, especially in novels and book series. In short fiction, you've got one plot. If there's something in the subtext, then it's it's kind of nebulous. It's something that doesn't necessarily need to be resolved. You know, whether you resolve your short story or not. There's one moment, one crux issue, one piece of time where something about either the situation or the protagonist is going to change. That's what it is. It is a snapshot of a moment of change. And that's where I find the most successful short stories to be. Either, either it's a moment where somebody kind of comes to a different conclusion or you can, you know, you can find some short stories where things just kind of seem to continue on in perpetuity, but that in itself is, you know, the realization, the rationalization that, you know, life is, is this kind of cyclical thing. Uh, but most successful short stories that I have personally witnessed, that I have personally seen, especially in science fiction and fantasy, are stories which have one specific plot point, one specific crux point that changes. Um, and... It's done in, you know, less than 20,000 words. You know, you're not uh, going into novella territory. If you go too far, then you're really going into novella territory. And then even further there into novel territory. We're not quite going there. Um, you know, the majority of stories that I saw when I was the editor-in-chief of a literary journal were around 5,000 words. That was kind of the the mainstay of the amount of stories that we were constantly getting in from uh, from authors who wanted to be present in the, in the journal. About five thousand words or so. So you're telling one storyline. You have one protagonist. You may have an ensemble of people, but you're concentrating on one person. You're stripping things down. You're leaving it in that one moment, and um, that's the crux. Like with whiskey and sinner's blood. It is, what does Carolee do to try and save her son? That is the crux. And the second that we find out what's actually going to happen, the story's over. 
it's done because yes. yes. that causal loop has closed that chain has had its final link it is now a closed circuit it's done and then we let it lie does it mean that the story is completely you know like oh yeah we'll never see carolee again no that's not true because she's in other things but this specific moment in time is concluded and um that's the thing I love about it because it leaves so many questions for what can happen in other times, you know, but at the same time, you need to have that little bit of fulfillment. You know, you need to have that causal chain kind of fulfilled and, um, you know, however you want to do that, this is horror. So it's not all turning out, you know, <laughs> lovely roses <laughs> and candy bars. Um, I mean, that being said, I have two stories in Macabre and Monstrous. I've got Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, of which I'm like, oh, I love you, my baby. Um, and then I also have the story of the Lamia. And the Lamia is more monster horror. And it, it features Caleb Matheson, the star of Charnash and Son of Abel and the Judge of Mystics books. Um, in the end of that one, because we closed the collection with the Lamia. So after all of these horror stories, all these things happen, Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, Harvest of Horror, we've got Salvager's Loop and Fell Plumes, all of these things. We finish off with the Lamia and the Lamia has that monster and all of that kind of, you know, a little bit of gore and things like that as Caleb's being chased around in the middle of the night in Vancouver by Granville Street and uh, West 12th. So anybody who's like, oh, I know that area. It's like, yeah, right between Granville and, and like Oak, you know, all those little places there. Yeah, that's where he is. Because yes. um, <laughs> I used to live there. So I was like, yeah, I know that place. Um, and once he defeats the monster, he's left with this lingering question of what he does next. And he goes home and sees his family and experiences that moment of family and that moment of like, settling and so we make sure that we leave the collection in a place where like you know somebody has survived <laughs> Caleb <laughs> makes it out alive you know he, we have that moment of, of kind of rectification of peace you know as much peace as you can have in a horror collection but uh we did that specifically because we wanted to make sure that you know we might take you through the valley but we're also going to make sure you're okay in the end um and that's still the promise. It's a promise in my literature. And it's also the promise uh, whenever I'm doing a collection like this. So um, that Lamia story, it was a very incredibly emotional story to write in a different way, in a very different way from Whiskey and Sinner's Blood. It is more monster. It is more this, but it also kind of, well, you have to read it. It has a little bit of rebuke in it. Not a lot, but a little, you know, it's, I think it's the most socially conscious that I've been in in writing stories um but it also comes to that moment where caleb goes yeah this is my life i'm gonna you know i'm gonna redeem this i'm gonna you know challenge this i'm gonna defeat this kind of evil and this is the kind of evil i'm gonna defeat and so it's very much that moment where it's forming a very significant part of his character uh into what sort of evil he will defeat so so miss Bernal, what are the key elements of a compelling short story Number one, your protagonist. I have to want to find out what's going to happen to this person or this duo. You know, absolutely. I need to care. I can't have an unfeeling everyman sitting in the background kind of letting things happen. There needs to be some form of active protagonist. 
Uh, so you can usually tell the difference between an active and an inactive protagonist. You know, if an active protagonist gets into a situation, they are willfully choosing the path to get out of that situation. They are moving forward. They are pushing forward. Things are happening because they are making them happen. An inactive protagonist is someone who things just happen to. And they're just sort of bumbling around and they're just kind of there and they're just sort of like, la, 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 la. And they're just kind of like tripping through life. Well, that's an inactive protagonist. And I'm not a huge fan of that. Your protagonist should be an active participant in the things that are going on in the short story. So that is absolutely number one for me. Uh, number two, you have to set the mood. You, you're in short fiction, especially, you know, the closer you get to flash fiction, the more poetic conventions you can use, in my opinion. So especially when you're looking at short fiction, which is under, you know, say under 5,000 words, under 2,000 words, you know, getting into flash fiction territory, which is under 1,500 words, um, you can use more and more of that very poetic, very kind of lyrical language. You can use a little bit more of those, you know, symbolisms and things like that that can make poetry so just incredible. And so with short fiction, I think we have the space for what, you know, some people I've, I've heard label quote unquote purple prose, you know, that sort of really substantial, creative mood setting, you know, maybe some longer, maybe some, you know, what other people would consider as run on sentences and things like that. But if they set the mood, then they're kind of giving you that space because you are crafting a space in as short and small amount of, of time as you have. So you need to craft that space quickly and you need to make it vibrant. I want a vibrant mm. setting. I want something that grips me. I want that language to be beautiful. Not necessarily the content has to be, you know, sunshines and roses, but I want to feel like even a sentence about say Lark and Mech in fell plumes running away from this cosmic monster in the middle of an abandoned space uh, station. I want to read that sentence and just fall in love with that mood that is created by Emily Armstrong in fell plumes. You know, uh, even if it's like, Oh my gosh, this is grotesque, you know, grotesque in a good way because it's horror, you know, not grotesque in a bad way because it's like, Ooh, who wrote this? You know, <laughs> Emily would laugh at that. Trust me, it's okay. Um, <laughs> she uses the word grotesque quite a bit. So <laughs> she has direct relation to, to Plumes there. Uh, you know, I want to feel provoked or involved in the story. I want to feel like the stakes matter. And to me, the stakes have to matter. You can write something, you know... Virginia Woolf ask. You can write something that's a little bit more about the mundanity of the everyday and things like that. But in a short story, I want that stake and I want it to matter. And it needs to feel like it matters. So that too comes into it. If the stakes are not high enough, I don't care. I clock out because it's like, well, there's no danger here. There's no, you know, whether it's danger of losing a relationship, like in uh, Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, or it's the danger of life and death, like in the Lamia, or whether it's the danger of not getting to the coffee shop in time for that last muffin, you know, because you want that muffin. It's the most important part of your day. If you don't have that muffin, you're not going to be able to perform at work. And if you can't perform at work, it's that day. It's the day you have to put this project out for the entire board. And this all comes down to whether or not you can get through traffic with somebody driving 30 in a 50 zone because you need that muffin. 
all of a sudden that muffin, even though it's a very mundane situation, it's like, oh my gosh, are they going to make it? Like, can they drive on the sidewalk? What's going on? No, no, it's a school zone. You've got to slow down. Holy, Like all of a sudden, just that talk about a muffin, it's like, <gasps> you know, I want to feel like the stakes matter. I also, in a short story, a little bit, almost less than in a novel, um, but still, you know, as part of it, I want to see levels. You know, I talk a lot about, you know, valleys versus mountains and, you know, where I'm going to bring people emotionally in my books. Uh, with short fiction, I still want to see levels, but it's a lot easier to have kind of a cognitive whiplash if you go from, say, a horror story like Salvager's Loop and then, you know, throw in some slapstick or a joke. Well, unless that joke with Corvin is going to break a little bit of tension, in a good way, but still kind of keep that line of tension going, almost like, you know, in a musical number where you will have like one sustained note throughout the entire thing. That's fine if you have that one sustained note. But <laughs> I think in short fiction, you can get cognitive whiplash so much more quickly. If you go from, you know, like, oh, my gosh, it's horror, it's coming, it's gonna get him, it's gonna get him, I can't let it get him. And then all of a sudden, like somebody slips on a banana peel, and everyone has a good laugh and giggle, and they forget what's going on. Well, I want to make sure that that tension is maintained throughout the story. So, Ms. Bernal, how do you choose a central theme or idea for your short story? With Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, it really was that sort of <laughs> Satan in Paradise Lost sort of anti-heroic tragedy fall. You know, it was you know, King Lear, Macbeth, Othello, you know, it was almost that Shakespearean tragedy of the anti-hero tripping over themselves, you know, into, um, into tragedy itself. So for me, Whiskey and Sinner's Blood, the second that I recognized that Cara Lee was the main character, not the fairy queen, not the sun, not calm, it's Cara Lee you know, it's her choices. I realized that I wanted to go back into my, um, in my career of, you know, being in Shakespeare, you know, both as an actor and also as an academic, you know, and going back to early theater and things like that. And in sort of like late medieval theater, um, where you have those tragic falls. And that's where Carolee came from. She unwound a lot like a fellow, a lot like, you know, Macbeth. And I wanted to play with that. I wanted to play with that. What do you do with that kind of character when they're in a setting like the 90s? You know, she's just a 90s mom. What does she do? You know, what, but you can kind of build all of this horror around it. So that was what it was for me. It was this incredibly personal. It reminded me a lot um, for the, for everybody who likes ancient theater. You know, it reminded me a lot of Thomas Kidd's, uh, you know, the Spanish tragedy with uh, or otherwise known as Hieronimo is is, is dead again. You know, Hieronimo is, is uh, mad again. Pardon me. Um, the Spanish tragedy was one of my favorite plays in university to kind of dive into. And there's, you know, the theory that some of what you know, Shakespeare wrote as Hamlet actually came from the Spanish tragedy uh, by Thomas Kidd. And so it was very much kind of diving into my love for that sort of tragic figure in theater. Uh, for the Lamia, it was much more, I needed a monster and I needed a monster that would reflect the culture of the time. 
And so I started with the Lamia. And the Lamia is basically the ancient Hellene boogeyman. Except the Lamia is a female monster who, in most accounts, is half snake, half woman. And she was a demigoddess. You know, she was a uh, lover of Zeus, daughter of Poseidon. Wow. So, you know, and Hera went, wait a minute, you're making my husband happy and now you're having children together. Nah, nope. Nope, <laughs> not <does>. happening. <laughs> exactly. And Hera turns this adulteress basically into a monster with unslatable lust. Like you cannot stop the Lamia from lusting uh, either for food or for <clears throat> something that you'll find out about it. Sex 101. Uh, later. <laughs> 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 yes. So, um, can you so be the my Lamia... guest? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I love it. I love it. But um, the Lamia turns into this monster who cannot be slated. This monster who cannot be pacified. And um, you know, there's varying renditions of the monster. You know, where you know Zeus blinded her so she wouldn't have to see what she had done, and and you know, it's this tragic figure and. Um, in some forms of the Lamia story, you know, there's moments where she, you know, massacres her children and that kind of thing because of this, this lust. But really, when you look at it, it's uh, the Lamia was the bedtime story they would tell your children back in those days of like, oh, you know, obey your parents because otherwise the Lamia will take you and eat you and all this stuff. You know, the monster under your bed was this unslatable, lusting and hungry woman. And so when you look at it that way, you're like, oh, of course, in misogynistic ancient Hellene cultures, a unslatable woman would be monstrous. This woman whose passions are so great and whose desires are so massive that she cannot be controlled. That, of course, that would be, okay, the second I had that, I had the entire story. I knew where the Lamia was going to start. I knew how she was going to end up in Vancouver. I knew what Caleb was going to have to be confronted by as a male. <laughs> you know, he's, uh, yikes. He has his moment and things like that too. And then in the end of it, I have this moment between when we transition from the monster part of the Lamia to Caleb going home. It was Caleb going, I promise you, I will avenge you. I will not let this happen again. You know, not on my watch. You know, and it's this very personal moment for Caleb of being like, I've got daughters. I need to make sure this doesn't happen again. Like, and so of him basically owning his fatherhood and owning what it really takes to raise strong, wonderful, intelligent, independent, and also loving women. Um, and so that was, you know, I say that Lilamia was a really personal story because of that. Um, because it's basically a little bit of a treatise on, you know, what it takes to raise, you know, just beautiful, wonderful, amazing um, women. And uh, it was a lot of fun, but I, it was also a lot of fun to write because, you know, the Lamia is a gigantic monster and she eats things. And, you know, Caleb's, you know, <laughs> crawling through Vancouver with a gut shot and is, you know, he's wounded and, you know, he's like, oh, and he'll flops back in the rain because of course it's October in Vancouver so it's raining and and he's looking up at the night sky and the night sky is answering back because the night sky is his grandmother and so he's like oh I'm working please not now <laughs> you know, it's, it's got those funny moments too but uh that's where it came to me uh it was 
that sort of, um, there's always an underlying reason for me. I, I cannot write without one. Um, uh, there's always some concept that I'm trying to explore and solve. Oh, interesting anthology of Miss a short story, Miss Vernell. But this episode is being brought to you by Pharmalife Organics, Earth Worth, Give from the Earth. Showing your what? So, Miss Bernal, can you please invite our listeners to support my comment monstrous? Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening today. Again, my name is Safa Burnell. Uh, you can find me at safaburnell.com, which is S-A-P-H-A-B-U-R-N-E-L-L.com. You can find Macabre and Monstrous on Amazon at Barnes and Nobles in Chapters Indigo. You can find Macabre and Monstrous in your local bookstore as well. Anywhere they have Ingram, they have Macabre and Monstrous. It is a fantastic collection. It is my my, my co-host Emily and Kess's debuts. So I really want to make this special for them. I'm hugely interested in seeing how their careers just skyrocket, not only from something like Macabre and Monsters, but also from um, Quests and Quarrels and Meaty Bones, which are their games that they're coming out with next year. And this is just a fantastic way of getting in and, you know, seeing a good sampler of different kinds of horror. You know, if cosmic horror is not so much your thing, then Kess's story with the pumpkin people ah, will be fantastic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so please Definitely. go on Amazon, go anywhere you purchase your books and uh, purchase Macabre and Monstrous. It is available in digital. It is available in paperback, hardcover, and we're almost finished the audiobook. Wow, it's hard to do the audiobook. My goodness. Yeah. Well, it's something that uh, Emily, especially, you know, she's got she's got over ten years of experience working in the audio, audio drama field, and so it was just incredible to work with her. You know, it was uh, <laughs> it was myself as the narrator. So if you don't like the sound of my voice, then so it's available in paperback and hardcover. Uh, <laughs> oh, but it was That's a lot of fun. Awesome. So. Yeah. Again, congratulations, Miss Bernal, for these latest anthologies. And please do support them, people. If because if you support them, more more anthologies to come. Miss Bernal, thank you for your time. And thank you for yours, and thank you everybody for listening. Bye.